Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Medicus. My name is Lauren Heckman, and I am joined here today with our guest, Dr. Eva Parker. This is actually a part two episode for Dr. Parker and I. Back in May of this year, Dr. Parker and I discussed the effects of climate change on dermatology and medicine more broadly. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure to go back and give it a listen. It's episode 86. And during that episode, I was able to give Dr. Parker's complete and very impressive bio. But as a quick reminder, Dr. Eva Parker is an assistant professor of dermatology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She received her BS in environmental science from the University of Denver, which fueled her interest in how environmental impacts and climate alterations affect health. She is a staunch advocate for both climate justice and healthcare sustainability, actively promoting broader education on the health impacts caused by climate change. Today, Dr. Parker and I are hoping to dive a little bit more into environmental justice here in the United States and globally. There are a lot of current events to discuss, so let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Medicus, Dr. Parker. Thank you so much, Lauren, for having me back. I'm really thrilled to be here and excited to be able to do a deeper dive with you on what I think is a really critical issue in the conversation about climate change and health. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I feel like you're such an expert on this topic and have a lot of wisdom to share. Right now, we're recording this episode on September 5th of 2022, and there are some major heat waves hitting the United States right now. My family is in Los Angeles, and they sent me a screenshot of the weather report for the week, and it's going to be over 100 degrees every day. And one of the topics that you brought up to discuss today was redlining and urban heat islands. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about each of those topics, and maybe we can dive a little bit more into both of them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think first, just to frame this whole discussion I'd like to read how the EPA defines environmental justice, because I think that helps us understand the perspective that we need to come at this from. And so the EPA defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development implementation and enforcement of laws, regulations, and policies. However, I have to say that this very idealistic definition remains a fairy tale as it's really still out of reach for so many communities of color in the United States. And that's where redlining comes in. So as a brief history lesson in the 1930s, as part of the New Deal, the federal government created what was called the Homeowners Loan Association. And the point, or corporation, I think it was, uh, the point of this was to provide loans and refinancing options to folks after the Great Depression to help them financially. And in doing so, the Homeowners Loan Corporation 
constructed city maps and they marked neighborhoods in varying colors, depending on whether that neighborhood was considered a, a benefit or maybe I should say um, would be a low risk to uh, lend to versus other neighborhoods that may be considered high risk or hazardous. And if you go back and look at these old maps, you can actually read the language that was used to describe the varying neighborhoods. And to say the least, it's deeply racist. And so what ended up happening is black neighborhoods were outlined in red and those neighborhoods were deemed hazardous to lend to. And this is a practice that became known as redlining. And it was san sanctioned by the federal government and it was racist real estate practices. What it ended up doing was segregating blacks into resource poor and resource deficient neighborhoods. And when you fast forward 90 years and look at those neighborhoods today, we see a few things. Number one, those previously redlined neighborhoods have an enduring legacy in that they remain minoritized and lower socioeconomic status. And much work has been done also looking at the correlation between prior redlining and urban heat islands. And what we understand now is that many of those neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s are now urban heat islands, where the temperatures can be markedly higher than nearby rural areas, or even neighborhoods that were previously marked in green on those maps in the 1930s. So for instance, in my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, when you look at wealthy white neighborhoods like Bell Mead, which was marked green on that map, and you compare that to redline neighborhoods in Nashville, you see that the temperature differential is eight and a half degrees Fahrenheit, which is really astounding. And there's many cities where that differential is even higher. So why is that? Well, I think it's important to understand what an urban heat island is, first of all. So when you look at, um, at say, a rural area or a suburban area, you'll see that there's much more vegetation, green space and trees, far fewer uh, buildings and much less asphalt and concrete. And so what happens in, in cities is that the concrete, the asphalt, the man-made structures and buildings impede water absorption into the soil. You also have increased traffic and you have buildings with mechanical devices like HVAC systems that are generating heat. On top of that, you don't have shade from trees and you don't have trees and vegetation to absorb and deflect much of the UV. The end result is that water is not absorbed into the soil and you don't get re-release that evaporates and cools. You also have fewer trees to result in transpiration that also cools the air. And so the result is that these neighborhoods that are in urban heat islands are markedly hotter because of all the man-made structures. On top of that, many redline neighborhoods were also sites of industrial facilities, dumps, and toxic waste facilities. And so not only is it heat that these communities are exposed to, but it's also pollution. Many highways run through these neighborhoods um, and toxic waste. Wow, yeah, I feel like the heat aspect is something that I had never thought about before. I think that people talk about redlining and different segregation practices in politics, but they don't realize that it has profound effects on your health as well. And becoming very relevant 
especially I know in Chicago where, where I am, there's been heat waves that had catastrophic tragedy on uh, the population here. There was a lot of deaths in the past and it's really important to be educated on these areas. And I wonder if there's resources for people when these heat waves are coming. I think about people in redlined districts and for example, Los Angeles where my family's at, what kind of health and benefits or, or what, kind, what kind of care are these people receiving during these heat waves? I don't know if you know any initiatives that go on maybe in Nashville where you are around the country. So yeah, I think it's important to understand what the risks are. So there's the acute health risks of heat, which include heat stress and heat stroke. And this is a progression of events as our ability to cool our bodies becomes overwhelmed. And that can be fatal. Um, it can lead to cardiovascular collapse. Um, so it is very serious. And, and you're right, many people die from heat stroke every year. It's a common reason for admission to emergency rooms. And in the Pacific Northwest last summer during heat waves, hundreds of excess deaths, deaths were attributed to those heat waves. And then this summer in Europe, thousands of people perished in places like Spain and in the UK because of ongoing heat waves there as well. So heat is a very real killer. In fact, it's the number one weather-related killer in the United States. On top of that, we have many chronic effects from heat that I think many people don't necessarily recognize or intuitively understand. But chronic heat exposure can lead to many things, including cardiovascular stress, diabetes, lung disease, maternal fetal effects, and poor pregnancy outcomes like preterm delivery and low birth weights, mental health disease, poor cognition in children. And many people who work outdoors simply aren't able to work during these heat waves. And so it also reduces worker productivity that can have an effect on people's income and ability to support themselves and provide for their families. So there are a lot of downstream effects health-wise um, from chronic heat exposure. And what we're seeing is that because of these heat waves, the temperatures are remaining higher at night as well. And so our body's ability to cool and recover before being exposed to intense heat again the next day is getting shorter and shorter. And so the result is that the chronic effects of heat are, are uh, really exaggerated. With respect to resources, it really comes down to local governments and what implementation what plans they have implemented and what, what public service announcements they do. Many communities, if they're not already, have begun to um, take steps to educate the public about the seriousness and deadly effects of heat waves. So for instance, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, before I had an electric car um, some years ago, I was waiting in line to get my emissions tested. And when I went through my emissions testing, I got a piece of paper that had both in English and Spanish the health effects of heat waves. It was during the summer that I was there. And I thought it was really interesting and what a clever way to reach people since you know, at that time, it was mandatory for everyone to get emissions testing and electric vehicles four or five years ago weren't nearly as popular 
in Nashville in general as they are now. So I thought that was very clever. Many health departments have taken up the initiative, but also many healthcare systems have as well. And then certain um, at a certain temperature threshold, cities will often open cooling stations for those who may not have access to air conditioning. Yeah, I can't help but think about what a um, economic barrier it is to have the privilege to have a, a air conditioner and also keeping it on 24-7 is really expensive. And um, it's, you know, some people do have an air conditioning unit, but they don't want to they only want to have it on certain times of the day because they can't afford a high electricity bill. And obviously it's been a summer of extreme weather events as we're going to, I know, talk about more global issues as well. But it's also been, um, you know, a time of inflation and a time of uh, harsh economic times. And so and I can't help but think about uh, how that really just further divides people when we have these more, we're going to continue to have heat waves and more extreme weather events, and it will just continue to widen the gap between those who can protect themselves and those who, who cannot. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there is that for many people in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods and in communities of color, they may not be able to afford air conditioning or be able to run it for extended periods during heat waves because of the cost. And I think um, really you highlighted the fact that we are all experiencing, not just in the United States, but globally, the pressures of COVID recovery and inflation and uh, supply chain issues and just exorbitant prices for everything from gas to groceries to medication and healthcare. And so I think it really emphasizes how climate change is a threat multiplier and how it enhances inequities that already exist. And it exacerbates comorbidities and health for especially people who are um, have lower socioeconomic status and less means and people of color in, in the United States specifically. It's important to highlight the unhoused populations in our country you know, especially during heat waves, people who do not have access to stable housing have nowhere to go. And I know municipalities like Nashville don't actually open cooling stations that unhoused individuals can access until the heat is extremely high, well beyond the dangerous wet bulb threshold. And so it puts these populations at risk and talk about not having resources to seek care or to cool down. It's a population that I think goes unnoticed and unadvocated for with respect to climate effects. Yeah, and it's a lot of times that population doesn't have fair warning of when these heat waves are going to come as well. Like you said that you got that flyer. That's a very clever way of of educating the public, but that's assuming you're getting to people that own a car. And um, how are you letting, um, how are local governments letting their unhoused populations know that there's going to be a really intense heat wave and if they can try and find some sort of shelter to look for it. And I know in our climate change and class elective at Stritch where, where uh, you and I connected, uh, we did, we talked about that and someone did a presentation on uh, educating the 
the unhoused population on the effects of uh, heat stroke and also how to recognize it when you are suffering and need to go to the emergency department that, like you were saying, I, I didn't even know about all these chronic effects of, of, um, of heat. So it's really important to do a better job of educating the public, especially now that we're going to be seeing this a lot more often. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think another another area that deserves perhaps a little bit of attention when we're talking about inequity here in the United States is, is air pollution in general. And so when you look at air pollution generation versus exposure, we see that there's a pollution ad- advantage for whites in the United States, whereby they actually breathe about 16% less air pollution than they actually generated. And Hispanics and Blacks breathe about 60% more on average air pollution than they actually generated. And so that is a huge inequity as well. And it goes back to, in part, that privilege often means greater CO2 and air pollution emissions. And it's not just privilege personally, but it's also privilege as a nation. And it also goes back to the fact that we were talking about red line communities um, are often disproportionately exposed to air pollution as well. And that's because things like factories and highways are often sited near, near or in these communities. So another example from Nashville, there is a housing community, public housing community here called the Casey Homes. They have the highest rates of asthma in Nashville. It's really remarkable. And a major interstate runs right by the Casey Homes. 100,000, 100,000 cars pass the Casey Homes every day. Can you imagine the amount of air pollution that those residents are exposed to? Of course, that's a, in a formally redlined neighborhood. And the vast majority of the residents in the Casey homes are Black. And so it just really, I think, embodies the inequity that many communities in every city in our country are experiencing. Yeah, I think you bring up such a great point about the people who are suffering the most from this pollution aren't necessarily the people that are always generating equal amounts. And like you mentioned also, that's huge for the United States compared to nations globally. A lot of our pollution gets passed by <laughs> by weather to other countries that are not emitting nearly as much as we are. And so there have been some really catastrophic events from the extremes of of climate change this past summer and countries are disproportionately being affected by, you know, wealthier, larger nations that aren't doing a great job of capping their emissions or taking responsibility for the externalities of what our factories create. I know that you brought up the flooding in Pakistan. I think that that's something that actually people aren't talking about as much as they should and maybe don't even know that that's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, catastrophic, I think, to say the least. A third of the country is underwater currently. It's um, the worst flooding Pakistan has ever seen and and one of the biggest climate catastrophes um, that, that I can think of in recent years. And it's it's sort of a perfect storm. There were 
heat waves, intense heat waves in Pakistan in April and May. And that did a couple of things. Number one, it increased glacial melt in the Northern mountains and even some of the glacial lakes burst. And these are, these are lakes at high altitude that go through freeze thaw cycles, freeze in the winter, thaw in the warmer months, but there's often huge ice dams that hold the water in place. But because of the heat waves, the dam, the ice dams melted. And so many of these lakes burst, allowing water to rush into streams and tributaries. And so throughout Pakistan, many of the rivers were already swollen because of the heat wave and increased glacial melt. Also, that heat warmed the Arabian Sea more so than it normally does. This then led to higher than average monsoons. In fact, some of the worst monsoons that the country has ever experienced. And as a result, now there's massive flooding that's you know covering large portions of the country. 33 million people have been affected. At least 1,300 people have died. Um, this is, it's, it's catastrophic when you think about the fact that Pakistan is a poor country. Um, they do not have the resources that wealthy developed countries have. And in addition to that, they really subsist. A lot of their income comes from agriculture. And in some of the regions uh, where the, that supply the majority of the country's food, most of the crops have been totally wiped out. In fact, in one region, 90% of the crops have been destroyed because of the flooding. We talk about inequity. I think you know it's also important to talk about different age groups and different situations of people who may be more vulnerable. So children are probably the most vulnerable group in general globally to the effects of climate change, the elderly as well. But I think pregnant women need to be in that category. And it should be noted that currently there are six 150,000 pregnant women in Pakistan, 73,000 are due to deliver this month. And there has been massive damage to infrastructure. And so it begs the question of how are these women going to get the necessary prenatal care, let alone deliver their babies? Uh, I listened to a World Health Organization Twitter feed a day or two ago, and um, they were talking about the number of health facilities that were damaged. And I think this is something as healthcare professionals, we really have to consider uh, is that when these extreme weather events occur, our own health facilities may be damaged and may impede our ability to provide care to the community when it needs it the most. And so about 10% of the health facilities in, in Pakistan have been damaged, more than 1,000 facilities uh, during the flooding. And maybe 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but that is, it is already a country that doesn't have a health infrastructure to provide care to everyone who needs it. And so wiping out 10% of the healthcare facilities is really dramatic. And then, of course, you have the acute issues with the flood, um, people drowning, acute injuries, but then come the other health concerns. 
um, that that rapidly follow this. And so there's fears about outbreaks of now malaria and dengue and other mosquito-borne illnesses, diarrheal illness, including cholera, typhoid. And we know from the 2010 Pakistan floods that actually skin disease represented the largest class of, of illness or health concern among individuals in Pakistan. And so the, the number of skin diseases reported actually outweighed diarrheal illness and respiratory illness. And so we know that there's often eczematous dermatoses and irritant contact dermatitis that develop and numerous skin infections that can also develop. And it can't be highlighted enough, the severe mental health effects that this sort of devastation has on individuals, on a population, on communities of care. Um, the, the grief, the over total loss, loss of their homes, loss of loved ones, loss of their livelihood, and the ensuing PTSD and, and other mental health issues that can last for months to years after this. It's, it's really tragic. Yeah, something that you brought up the last time we spoke on our first episode together was also the health manifestations that stress can take on someone. And you were talking about, which was something that I, in medical school, and people joke about, oh, I've, you know, I'm losing my hair studying so much. But we're talking about your complete livelihood is gone. You don't have access to clean water. Maybe you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You have absolute uncertainty. Of course, that can have detrimental tolls on your health that just ex exacerbate all these other problems that we're talking about. And I think that, of course, like you said, we're, there's there might be malaria outbreaks, there's very defined diseases. But what about the stress effects that this is going to take on people's bodies as well. And I think that's not as talked about. And I think, I think it's a really interesting point. And yeah, obviously the immense trauma that's going to follow this population. And obviously these, these women that are going to have to give birth in such a, in such a horrible situation. Yeah, I think it's, it's um, such a deeply humbling thought to consider how much devastation there is in Pakistan right now and how relatively low resourced the country is. And you're, you're, you have to consider that the people that are affected are already live below the poverty line and they've lost everything. They have, they've lost their home. And these are people that may live in mud huts um, or very poorly constructed buildings. Those, those homes are destroyed. Their crops are destroyed. And part of the devastation here is climate change. And part of it is a legacy of colonialism and imperialism that much of the global South was subjected to. And so much like our systemic racism here in the United States, much of the world has been affected by a lasting legacy and enduring legacy from colonialism and imperialism. 
And while that's a very complex issue to get into the nuances of that in, in Pakistan, but that is part of the reason why there is a large number of the population who are below the poverty line. And I think it's also important to emphasize that well, Pakistan's a pretty large country. They only produce 1% of greenhouse gas emissions, yet they warmed 0.3 degrees Celsius between 1986 and 2015, where the rest of the world has warmed, what, 1.1, 1.2 degrees. And so they are immensely and disproportionately affected by climate change. And that is in, that's far outweighs any contribution that they've made to it. And so it's just, it's, it's incredibly sad. Um, I think it's unfortunate that there hasn't been more sustained media coverage of this, at least in the United States. I can't speak for for other countries. It's really a massive humanitarian crisis. And of course, many groups are, are there on the ground providing aid and assistance. But what makes me a little bit more sad than thinking about Pakistan at this moment is thinking about that this is not going to be the end of the story, that this sort of story of devastation in low-resourced countries is going to be a revolving door. There'll be another story next month and another story next month. And there are already other stories that are paralleling this, not only in our own country and looking at the, um, the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, but when you look at the famine and the drought happening in Somalia, the famine and the drought happening in Madagascar, you know, devastating floods um, a, a year or two back in Mozambique. It, it's it, it's a repetitive cycle, and if we don't begin to step up and address climate change in a meaningful way as a global community, this this is only going to become more amplified. The extreme weather events, not only locally but globally, will continue to cause massive loss of human life, amplified disease, and result in billions of dollars in infrastructure damage. Yeah, and I think that all of these tragedies and catastrophes locally and globally are happening a lot quicker than people are, are realizing it. We're, we're going through massive changes and the ball's already rolling. And that's not to say that, that it's too late, we can't do anything. Of course, there's always something that we can do but we have to make sure that we're keeping on top of how our environment immediately where we live is changing, how that will affect our health. I know last time we talked a lot about uh, different ranges of insects changing. And so what we used to educate populations on the risk before, maybe certain ticks have expanded their range from just New England to more states. And are we keeping on top of what is happening and how we can protect people around the world, set themselves up to take coverage during the heat wave, what to do, like what to, how to, how to be safe during a flooding, like what, know what all the, um, the health risks that are with all of these, these new extreme weather events that are going to happen. I think that people are, 
are not realizing that it's already happening and things have already changed and to educate ourselves and, and also to start making meaningful steps to change their their routines and their habits to be a little bit more green friendly and not add to the pollution like we've said that disproportionately affects people around the world. Well, I think we're we are getting to a place where nations like the United States and nations in Western Europe are going to have to start putting money where their mouth is. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens at COP27 in Egypt in November. But until the biggest polluters are willing to sacrifice economic growth to reduce emissions, we will not have any resolution of this in a meaningful way on a global scale. And again, the inequities are immense. I think it's important to point out, um, I mentioned Madagascar, and that's one of the poorest nations on the planet. It is the fourth largest island in the world, um, which I think is interesting. And they produce one one hundredth of a percent, not even one percent, but one one hundredth of a percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, whereas the U.S. produces like 13, 14 percent. And, you know, they have had major issues um, with uh, drought and famine and well over a million people needing food uh, provided from the UN. It's that in Somalia, I mean, there, there are major food insecurity issues that had existed already, but the, the famine in those two countries uh, risks literally killing millions of people because of drought. So when you look at the poorest nation making the least amount of greenhouse gases, being so disproportionately affected by the effects of climate change. Many people have been calling for wealthy Western nations to fund adaptation and resiliency programs in these nations. And we'll see what happens at COP27 if, if, if Western nations begin to put money where their mouth is. Yeah, I think that, not that we can know yet, but I'm still optimistic or hoping that if COVID taught us anything, it's also that we can make really big radical changes. I mean, the amount of people that stayed home and the people that were privileged enough to be able to work from home, that it is possible to reduce the amount of emissions by just driving less. We made huge radically changes radical changes to our daily lives um, because we had to. And so I think that that really was a great example that we can all together make big changes that could have real measurable effects. And so I do hope that Western countries can see a little bit more of that. They can sacrifice more because right now we have more of an ability to make these changes and we're lucky enough to have support systems and the economic feasibility to make changes to our lives, but other countries cannot. Like you, like you said, the f especially countries that are so 
food insecure. We're talking about Pakistan that had such a large economy based in agriculture. And if you wipe that out, how, where are they going to pivot to? The United States is able to pivot and make the changes. And also, I think I could argue that we're also more responsible to do that because we are producing more pollution. We should be making the larger changes. We can't expect other countries that aren't producing as much to be making these radical changes when they're suffering from from our, our consequences. Yeah, I think it's hard not to be doom and gloom about all of this because it's um, it's very serious, it's very sad. The climate crisis is very grave and the outlook is grave if, if we don't make serious changes globally. And I think it's important to not be not be hopeless or feel helpless. You putting your plastic bottles and glass and tin cans in a recycle bin is not going to solve this problem, but it's an important step. And I think if we can all be intentional in our daily lives, that we begin to build a culture around us where our friends and neighbors begin to do that. When we go to work and as healthcare professionals, we advocate for responsibility in our own practices with reducing waste and decarbonizing our own healthcare system, which contributes in the United States to 10% of our global greenhouse gas emissions and to almost 5% globally, of which the United States contributes 25% of that global total. But when we can go to work and advocate for healthcare sustainability and responsibility to reduce our emissions, we begin to improve the health of our communities. And I do firmly believe that every action that leans into this is beneficial. And I don't want people to be hopeless or feel helpless. At the same time, we also require massive global effort and global cooperation from governments. I mean, it's it, it will take that. I remain optimistic that there is a future where we head down the right path, but time is running out for us to choose that path. And I think it's really important as healthcare professionals, for me as a physician, for you, Lauren, as a future physician, to think about how we have power and we have voice. And human health and planetary health are intimately linked. They are one in the same. You cannot have a healthy population in an unhealthy planet. And if we can commit as healthcare professionals to raising awareness, advocating for better policies, decarbonizing our own professions, and continuing to push the health aspects of climate change and the benefits to health when we begin to think about climate adaptation and resiliency, that there's opportunity for our voice to be heard broader and louder. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of denial. There's a lot of pushback. But one thing that gets people to sit up and listen is something that's going to affect their own health. Or we talk about intergenerational inequities and the fact that 
Children born today are going to experience up to seven times more extreme weather events than people who were born in 1960. I don't know any parent or grandparent who doesn't want a better life for their child and their grandchildren. And so I think when we can begin to frame the climate crisis around these critical issues, it gives us more traction and allows us to engage broader audiences and bring more people along on this journey of trying to help our planet heal. Yeah, I think that there is always something that we can do. This is a very urgent issue, but it doesn't mean, like you said, it has to be all doom and gloom. And um, I know in the last episode, um, you gave a bunch of resources for pre-medical and medical students. So I'll make sure to link that in this episode as well for for current pre-health or current health graduate students to get involved. I, I thought that the different uh, grades for different hospitals and ways that you can make the healthcare profession a little bit more green. I think people kind of write off healthcare as it would be hard to reduce our waste, but I don't think that's true at all. I think there's always room for innovation. And I am inspired by my peers and people in, in my medical school class were really, really passionate about changing the planet and changing the planet for, for human health sake and for the planet health sake. I think there's so much that we can do. And we're lucky to have people like you to educate us on these topics and really synthesize medicine and, and planetary health because they are almost one and the same. So always appreciate your time and wisdom on this topic. This has been um, another great episode, Lauren. I feel honored to have been asked back and, and to discuss such a critically important topic and to highlight some of the inequities that climate change brings. I want to just close by saying that medical students can get involved and should get involved. You have a lot of power. If you don't have a medical students for a sustainable future at your school, start a chapter. Make sure that you push your school to incorporate climate and health into the curriculum. And most medical students have to do QI projects. So why not make one about healthcare sustainability or patient education around climate and health effects? and continue on being advocates for your patients and their health and climate change, mitigation and adaptation and resiliency. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Parker. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.